face of my enemy. I see my brother. I see my brother. When I look into the face of my enemy, I see my brother. I see my Well, the church is no stranger to conflict. Have you noticed that? I mean, in your life, whether you've been in the church for a week or a month or 20 years or 50 years, uh, we, from time to time, have internal conflict. We have church fights, and that happens, sadly, over the course of the years. As I think about uh, church conflict and internal church conflict in particular, uh, a number of stories come to mind. I'm sure if we had an open mic session, which we're not going to do, but if we had an open mic session, uh, you could probably fill the entire service and the next month 
telling your stories of these conflicts and sometimes the fallout and the hurt that it causes. I think of my brother Alan, and uh, my brother Alan was really a big part of the reason why um, I felt God calling me to pursue pastoral ministry. I looked up to him and admired him. He's about 15 years older than me, and uh, so he's really old now, but uh, I think he might be watching today. That's why I'm saying it. But uh, his first pastor, first main pastor, was at a little church near Victoria, British Columbia, and the church was called, I've mentioned this to a few people, it was called Sluggett Memorial Baptist Church. That should have been a clue right from the start. It's going to be a slug fest. And uh, so he went to Sluggett Memorial Baptist Church. And the problem was, Alan is a very sensitive to the spirit kind of guy. And Alan began to realize that maybe we weren't paying attention to the spirit as we should. And he wanted to express that to the congregation out of his pastoral heart. And so he decided the best way, I guess, was to introduce a new song <laughs> to the congregation using only his guitar. It was horrible. I mean, just the building started to burn down and pews caught fire and people melted. And no, nothing like that happened, except he was fired. Not right away. He was asked to take a leave and search his heart and come back with a paper and everything else. And he went through all that. And, and then afterwards they said, no, you're gone. And beside, besides all that, the loan that we gave you to buy the house, we need it back immediately. So it's amazing what we do, right? I remember when Christine and I uh, were in early stages of ministry at White Rock Baptist Church in the early 90s. Um, White Rock Baptist at that time was, you know, a thriving church of over 700, and, and I was blessed to be the youth pastor there, and Christine was actually working on staff as the secretary for about nine years there as well. And um, even though our denomination, which was then called the Baptist Union of Western Canada, even though our association of churches uh, fully endorsed women as pastors since like the 50s, White Rock still didn't. That's the interesting thing about our association of churches. It highly values the autonomy of the local church, right? And so each local church had to implement these instructions as they saw fit, and White Rock said no to women in leadership positions. But things were changing. And so we had some congregational meetings and we had some guest speakers come in. Stanley Grintz was one of the speakers. Some of you might know that name. He came and, uh, and shared some of his thoughts and, and biblical teaching on that. And, and eventually a decision was made. We were going to allow the women to serve communion. But only in the balcony. I'm not kidding. I mean, we're not talking the 1800s here. We're, we're talking like 1992 or three or something like that. Um, but there was a real fear about that kind of change. And especially if the women wore, you know, skirts or dresses, they couldn't be on the platform. They had to serve in the balcony. Um, so White Rock's come a long way since those days. But it's interesting how these conflicts just load our communities with anxiety, with fear, Sometimes in the midst of that, we do strange and not so wonderful things. And so sometimes it's after years have passed, we look back and scratch our heads and go, why did we get so worked up about that <laughs> when now things have changed? Well, the good news is, I guess the good news is that this is not new, right? You just turn to a few pages in the Bible and you discover very quickly that right from year dot, the church was having conflict. 
that there was things happening in the church right from the very beginning that showed that they were in conflict, sometimes internally, with one another. Why is this? Why is this? Well, I don't know if you've also noted, but sometimes in families we have conflict. I don't know about your family, but my family occasionally gets into a bit of a spat, right? And maybe in your neighborhoods or at your workplace or in your school or maybe even in politics sometimes there's conflict. I, I look at all that and I say maybe it's part of the human condition. And as we come even into the church, we're humans, we're human beings. We come to this place, this beautiful community that's called together to inhabit the gospel of Jesus but we come with our brokenness, we come with our unmet needs, we come with our selfish desires, we come with our egos, we come with our ideologies, we come with our agendas, and sometimes those things clash, right? That's what happens. But there's a positive way also to look at conflict. I know you might not think it as positive, but here's the positive angle on conflict. It's not just out of our brokenness, it's out of our love and passion. Phil Collins, not the drummer of Genesis fame, but my mentor, Phil Collins, um, he, he said something to me that has profoundly changed the way I view conflict. He said this, we fight because we care. Think about that for a minute. If we didn't care, we wouldn't fight. You know, the people that just give up and they don't fight anymore, they've stopped caring. The problem is, we don't always care about the same things. <laughs> and the problem is, we don't always care about the right things. And so Paul, in the passage that was read for us today, by Lori, thanks, Paul wants us to care about the right things. There's an old prayer, Lord, teach me to care and not to care. Lord, teach me to care about the things that are important to you. And Paul wants us to care about the right things. I think Paul gets a bit of a bad rap sometimes. Some people say, oh, Paul was against women and Paul was mean and ornery and all this kind of stuff. But when you read Paul through the New Testament, one thing becomes very clear. Paul's heart was for the unity of the church. Paul's heart was to see the church work together as the body of Christ. And just as we don't want our body fighting against one another, right, our physical body, we also don't want to see the body of Christ in conflict with another. And that was part of Paul's heart. How do we strive for the unity of faith in the bond of peace? How do we embody that phrase that there is only one God, <laughs> there's only one baptism, there's only one faith, and we're called to that unity together? How do we find that? How do we find that, that heart of God? Well, in verse 5 of the passage that was read, Paul lays out the vision for unity in the church. He says this, May God, who gives this patience and encouragement, help you live in complete harmony with each other, as is fitting for the followers of Christ Jesus. That's Paul's heart all the time. That for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of our witness in the world, this place should be different. This community of faith should be different. We're taught all kinds of things in the world around us about being selfish and demanding your own rights and calling out, you know, the people that you disagree with on Facebook, all that kind of stuff. But here it should be different. 
somehow. And so Paul says, as is fitting for the followers of Christ Jesus, then all of you can join together with one song, giving praise and glory to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Where does Paul get this vision of unity? Well, he gets it from Jesus. That's what Jesus prayed too. He turned to John chapter 17, which is actually the Lord's prayer. And you find Jesus praying that they, that we might be one, even as he and the Father are one. So that's the, the heart of the vision for Paul. So in this church in Rome, what was the issue? What was dividing them? What was causing them conflict? What was causing them to, to not fully appreciate this gospel unity that Paul was calling them to? Well, in chapter 14, verses 1 to 10, we find out, and I'm going to read some of it um, because Paul is really um, clear and direct in these passages. But basically, it comes down to this. Food, drink, and holy days. <laughs> Those are the three things. And, and they weren't just side issues. For many people, they were the issue. And it was tearing the church apart. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 14. Accept other believers who are weak in faith and don't argue with them about what they think is right and wrong. For instance, one person believes it's all right to eat anything, but another believer with a sensitive conscience will eat only vegetables. Those who feel free to eat anything must not look down on those who don't. And those who don't eat certain foods must not condemn those who do, for God has accepted them. Who are you to condemn someone else's servants? They are responsible to the Lord. So let him judge whether they are right or wrong. And with the Lord's help, they will do what is right and will receive his approval. In the same way, some think that one day is more holy than the other day, while others think every day is alike. You should each be fully convinced that whatever day you choose is acceptable. Those who worship the Lord on a special day do it to honor Him. Those who eat any kind of food do so to honor the Lord, since they give thanks to God before eating. And those who refuse to eat certain foods also want to please the Lord and give thanks to God. For we don't live for ourselves or die for ourselves. If we live, it's to honor the Lord. And if we die, it's to honor the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Christ died and rose again for this very purpose, to be Lord of both the living and the dead. So why do you condemn another believer? Why do you look down on another believer? Remember, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. What an amazing thing Paul was calling people to. Paul, in this uh, uh, passage, he lays out the problem that's there. And the problem was partly with food. Uh, if people were coming from uh, a traditionally Jewish background, they were taught all their life and for generations that, that certain foods were forbidden. You just didn't eat those foods. And when they saw people eating those foods, they would have been repulsed, like it would be repulsive. Uh, for them to see other people enjoying the foods that were clearly forbidden. But also in Rome, often the practice was the people, the, the uh, people that were bringing the animal to market would first go to the temple and offer it as a kind of sacrifice to the idols. And then it would be butchered and sold in the market. And some people said, that's wrong. I can't handle that. I can't eat food that's already been sacrificed to idols. Paul points out, you know that idol that you're talking about? It's just a piece of stone, really. 
It's nothing. So go ahead and enjoy your steak. <laughs> but, but some people, they had difficulty with that, right? Other people were caught up on holy days. They've been taught for, for generations that you've got to observe these days as part of what it means to be holy. How do you let that go? And other people were like, freedom! We get to play soccer on Sunday now. Um, you know, whatever it is. And so there was this conflict of values and heritage and history and what they saw was essential to what it means to be the holy people of God. Pastor Samuel last week uh, introduced us or at least expounded some very key words that are also relevant in this conversation. One of the words was freedom. And I love what he had to say about freedom. What I got from that is that freedom is not anarchy, right? In freedom, uh, we're, we're not simply given the opportunity to do whatever we want. We're not, we're not simply there to please ourselves. That is not biblical freedom. Biblical freedom is the freedom to serve one another. And it's the freedom to please God. And then another word that he, he expounded for us was the word conscience, literally meaning with knowledge, that we have this internal understanding of what is right and wrong. And both these things, freedom and conscience, factor into this conversation that Paul's inviting us into. So Paul then describes two categories of people in the church, the sensitive and the strong. Sometimes in our Bibles, it's the weak and the strong. I wonder if Paul used the word strong because that was his point of view, so he's the strong one. But I don't think it's meant that way. It's better to understand it as those who have a sensitive conscience and those who maybe have a strong conscience. The sensitive, those who were maybe seen as weak in the faith, they were really convinced that they should still follow the rules. That's what we have to do. That's the place of safety. That's the place of holiness. We've got these rules for a reason, and we still need to hold on to them. Those who are maybe strong in the faith, they, they were convinced that they have permission to leave those rules behind and experience freedom. So what's the solution? When you've got that kind of tension, not only in Paul's day, but we see it day after day still in our churches, right? What do we do with that tension? How do we resolve it? Well, Paul's solution might surprise us. I think we'd like Paul just to stand up and say, look, this is the way, and this is what you're supposed to do. But he doesn't actually do that. He makes it more difficult for us. I mean, in some ways, it would be great just to get the list of rules and just obey them. Paul offers his opinion. He eats whatever meat he feels he wants. He drinks wine and even prescribes it to his friend Timothy. You know, he doesn't necessarily observe the holy days. But he takes an interesting approach when advising the church. He says this, Each one of you should be convinced in your own conscience what is right and then live consistently according to that conscience before God. That's surprising to me. Like it's not a hard and fast rule. That makes it more complicated for us. It makes it a little bit more messy in community. But he says, if you're convinced of something, then be convinced before God of it. And then you need to live your life consistently with what's on your conscience. However, he says, if you are convinced that you're supposed to follow the rules, for instance, not eating meat, do so, but don't condemn or look down on those who eat meat. You see the, the modifier in there? 
You're convinced of it. That's how you need to live before God in this peripheral issue that we have, right? Live before God in that way. Live consistently in yourself, but don't impose that rule on others around you. And don't, can, don't try and look down on or judge others. In the same way, those who have maybe a stronger conscience, uh, don't use your freedom to cause other people to stumble. So if I know that Pastor Samuel uh, only eats vegetables, he doesn't. He makes uh, fantastic meat dishes that they bring over from time to time. But if Pastor Samuel only eats vegetables and I invite him over and all I offer to him is a T-bone steak, that's insensitive, isn't it? I should not cause him to stumble. And by stumble, Paul is saying, don't cause him to be in conflict with his own conscience. Don't cause him to have to choose between friendship with you and his own internal conscience. You know, you don't need to eat steak that day. You can serve something else, right? Be sensitive to those around us and, and hold each other up. And so this is Paul's, um, this is his solution. I'm going to take a hot button topic, topic and we'll see if we can work this through right now. Ready for it? Everybody's like, what is he going to say? Alcohol. <laughs> it's, it's amazing to me the change that has happened, even in my lifetime, in attitudes in the church uh, with alcohol. Christine and I did not have wine at our wedding or dancing because that was what was expected at White Rock Baptist Church. It was uh, verboten. You know, you were not allowed <laughs> to have anything like that. And so we didn't. And it's, it's come a long way since then. I'm not saying we've got a whole cellar full of wine now, but, you know, it's, it's come a long way since then. But it's so interesting how attitudes have been shaped over time. And so some people now within the church are just fine having a glass of wine and see absolutely no problem with it. But there's others still in our congregation who have deep concerns about having a glass of wine. And they do so for their own convictions. Perhaps some people have an addiction. Perhaps some people have had bad experience with someone else who has abused alcohol. Perhaps some people are concerned if, if you open that door, where it's going to go. And so if, if I invite someone over who's, you know, celebrating the, uh, their 30th year with Alcoholics Anonymous being, you know, totally dry, and I meet them at the glass door with a big bottle of wine, that's insensitive. So it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? We're to live according to the convictions that we have, but we do so with respect to one another as well. And that's how Paul called people together in unity. So his bottom line in chapter 15, verse 7 was this. Therefore, accept each other just as Christ has accepted you so that God will be given the glory. Accept one another. This is an important word, and we're going to spend just a little bit of time on this as we begin to wrap up. The word accept also means to welcome or to receive. And it's found in many different places throughout the Bible. And I'm going to give you two instances in the New Testament that will maybe help us understand what Paul is saying when Paul says, accept one another. The first comes from Acts 28. Paul is on a journey, he's on a boat, and he has a shipwreck. They managed to make it safely to shore. And this is what Paul, this is what's said in Acts 28. Once we were safe on shore, we learned that we were on the island of Malta. 
The people of the island were very kind to us. It was cold and rainy, so they built a fire on the shore to welcome us. That's the word. Interesting, isn't it? They built a fire on the shore to accept us, to receive us, to welcome us. You see, what a, what a profound act of kindness this was. Because the people on the island just saw the shipwreck. They had no idea who was on that boat. Were, were these good people? Were these bad people? Were these people sick and diseased? Were they going to infect the island? What was going to happen when they came ashore? But out of an act of generous kindness, they prepared a fire to accept them, to welcome them. Here's one other occasion, and this is, comes from the little letter Philemon, and I've referenced this letter a couple Sundays ago. This backstory is Onesimus was a slave who, it seems like he stole something from his master and then took off running. And um, he ran into Paul and through meeting with Paul, accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior. Now, Paul was getting ready to send him back to Colossae and even back into the very community that he left. But Paul says in this letter to Philemon, please receive him back no longer as a slave, but as a brother. Listen to what Paul says. So if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. Welcome him as you would welcome me. That's the word. Receive him, embrace him, accept him. We know that he's done wrong. We know that reparations might need to be made. We know that there's this class distinction that's very awkward in community for you. But if you love me, love him. And that's the same principle that Paul brings out in Romans chapter 15 when he says, accept each other just as Jesus has accepted us. With all our faults, with all our flaws, even while we were still enemies, even while we were still sinners, Christ received us. One of the most beautiful stories um, in the New Testament for me is the, the story of Zacchaeus. He was the little guy, right, that was up in the tree. And uh, Jesus is coming along one day, and he sees him up in the tree, and he knows, everybody knows, that this guy is just out for himself. I mean, he's clamored up into the tree so he can see Jesus because he's short. I'm not just saying that. The Bible actually says it too. It's a kind of a weird reference. But this little guy, he says, I got to see Jesus. Who cares about the rest of the crowd? I'm getting up there. And he's a tax collector. So he's not very well liked in the community. And he's also not just a tax collector, but he's shady in the way he does business. And he steals from people. So all of a sudden, Jesus stops right under him. And what does Jesus say? Zacchaeus, come down. You're guilty of all kinds of sin. I want you to repent at my feet, and then we'll see what we're going to do with you. No, he doesn't say that, does he? It's remarkable. Jesus looks up and says, hey, Zacchaeus, I need to come to your house today for dinner. And everybody's like, oh, what? That's inappropriate. No one wants to go to a tax collector's house for dinner, right? And, and Jesus shows up at his house. Jesus only says two things in that entire story. One is, I must come to your house today. And as he sits for dinner with Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus is moved. And he says, you know what? I am going to give back four times more than anything I've stolen. And Jesus then says, today salvation has come to this house right? Jesus didn't even wait for Zacchaeus to repent before he received him, 
before he accepted him. It wasn't on any kind of condition. God's love is unconditional like that. And we could go story after story. Think of the prodigal son. He's coming down the road. He's rehearsing in his, line, in his mind all the lines he's going to say to his dad. And his dad is watching for him day after day after day, sees the son afar off and rushes to him, completely undignified, embraces his son, says, let's celebrate. My son who was lost is now found. He didn't even wait for his son to confess or repent. He just received him. In that same way, we are called to accept one another. Don't even wait for the repentance. So what does it mean for us to accept one another here in this congregation? Well, accepting one another is to receive another person with special concern and care and value. Accepting others is welcoming them into your life as you would treat someone who is important to you. It's placing value on the person, significance on the person, and dignity on that person. That's what it means to accept one another in Christ. Now, accepting one another doesn't mean that we never share our opinions. <laughs> Paul shared his opinions quite freely in here, but he did so without condemnation. Can we make that distinction? It's a nuanced conversation, isn't it? That we're able to share our opinions with one another without condemning or looking down on the other because they have a difference of opinion. Accepting one another also doesn't mean that we just blindly affirm the life decisions of others. I think it's his hardest when it's our children, right? And, and we realize, man, you're going down the wrong path with these decisions. But I'm going to continue to love you and accept you and hold a space in my life for you because of that love, even though your decisions, I think, are going to cause you harm, right? Accepting one another doesn't mean that there's no core belief that's the foundation for unity. I do believe that there's a core belief that we hold on to as believers in Christ, that it's not just about our actions, that it's actually about the way we think about Jesus and the world around us. It still means that we have a core belief, but so many of the other things are held with open hands. Accepting one another means, means making room at the table even when we disagree. On Tuesday night, where the elders have invited us to gather around tables to have some tough conversations about the identity statement from the CBWC and the implications of that for our congregation. And if you have signed up for it, and then we're going to welcome you and we encourage you, if you want to come, to sign up in advance so we know how many people to prepare for. But only come to those tables if you're willing to make room for others that may have different opinions. Only come to those tables if you're willing to accept one another in the love of Christ. That's how we have these conversations together. Accepting one another means not imposing our personal convictions on another. Accepting one another means not condemning or judging another that has a different view. Accepting one another means not using our freedom carelessly or flaunting it and causing someone else to stumble. This is what Paul is talking about when he says to accept one another. So Paul recognizes that people fight because they care. These values that were evident in the church in Rome were very important to the people. But he really wants them to care about the right things. In chapter 14 and verse 20, Paul says this, Don't tear apart the work of God over what you eat. Don't tear apart 
the work of God over what you eat. As important as these rules and what we eat and all these other things are, don't let it tear apart the work that God is doing in this place. For Paul, there seemed to be a wide range of disputable matters, matters that, that really seemed to be core to some people, and Paul was saying, just hold that lightly, because of greatest importance is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Of prime importance is that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's the essence of what Paul calls us to in unity. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? Amen? But even if we don't believe, even if we see someone as our enemy, we will still love them and receive them because just as we were enemies, God received us and loves us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you didn't wait for us to repent. You didn't wait for us to clean up our act. Instead, you took all the initiative in this. You sent your son, Jesus, to die for us, to show us your love, to receive us to yourself, to say, whosoever will may come. Thank you for that. Thank you that we can come as we are, knowing that you won't leave us in that place, but that you want to change us and conform us into the beautiful image of your Son. Help us to do that, and help us to, to grant the same patience and endurance and forgiveness and space that you've given to us. Help us to do it with one another, even as we go through this time. We pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.